Good morning, church. I want to welcome everybody who's joining us here online. We're in the midst of this series that we've entitled Navigating Life, and really we're confronting one of the great illusions of our day, and it's the illusion that we can be in control of every facet of our life. That's actually kind of a new idea, and I'm not sure whether it's a byproduct of of all of the modern technology we have at our disposal or the free flow of vast amounts of information, but I think we live with this idea that that because of all of these advances, we ought to be able to manage and control our lives. And in a sense, that's true until it's not. And then the unexpected happens and the circumstances of our lives come crashing down. Uh, Think about it this way. We each carry, or indeed most of us in our pocket, a smartphone with more computing horsepower than anything imagined in the history of the human race up until about a dozen years ago. Today you can pull out your smartphone and there is an app for everything. You want to go on a date. And so... There's an app for that. You want to decide what restaurant to take your date to. There's an app for that. You need help selecting something off the menu. There's an app for that. You're counting calories. You can count the calories with an app. You want to rate the food after your meal. There's an app for that. You want to navigate home with your date. There's an app for that. The date didn't work out and you want to let them down gently. There's <laughs> there's even an app for that. Over and over again with the touch of a button, it makes us feel like we're in control. And then inevitably something happens and we realize that we're not. Stuff happens. It's not part of the plan. We, we had a grand plan, a master plan for our lives, and that wasn't it. Sometimes when I'm busy writing, I look down at my hands and I, I notice the scars, and there are several and they're quite prominent. It's, it's a reminder of some of the wounds of my past. I remember the circumstances in which they were created. It's a reminder that the unplanned happens, that my body is fragile, that it's vulnerable, and that despite my best efforts or my precautions, I'm not always in control. I wonder about you. We all carry scars, don't we? What scars is it that you carry? What stories do you have to tell? What are the lessons that those scars have to speak? What are the stories of life out of your control that can become illustrative as we think about navigating life? Maybe for some of you it was that that unexpected diagnosis. It came right out of the blue. The loss of a job, the loss of a relationship, maybe an accident, maybe a circumstance, even a natural event, a catastrophe that that was completely off the radar. But for the past few weeks, We've been living with this one verse. It's a verse written by the Apostle Paul, written to the church in Rome. It's the verse from Romans 8, 28. And by now, most of you know it. It goes like this. And we know that in some things, God works for the good of those who love him. Except that's not what it says, is it? Did anybody anybody there catch 
the little difference, the little change that we made. What does that verse really say? We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And I hope at least some of you caught the change because that means you are memorizing the verse and, of course, you're here with us. But I recognize that for many of us in our personal lives, that we actually live with the edited version of the promise in Romans 8.28. We use that word some. I think some is where some of us live. I think that word some is what some of us actually believe. I mean, sure, God is working in some people's lives. Sure, God is working in some circumstances. But there are some other things in life, difficult things, catastrophic things, where it's hard to believe that God is really at work. And maybe there's, there's some stuff that is just out of God's reach. Maybe there's some stuff that's, that's too far away for him to handle. Well, I love it the way that the psalmist puts it. He writes this in the Old Testament in Psalm 10 and verse 1. It says, why, Lord, do you stand far off? That's the question. That's the sum question. Why do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Well, it's that little word trouble that we want to narrow in on in today's message. The word trouble is a really significant word, not just in Scripture, but in our lives. It's a word that they used a lot in the Old Testament. And they didn't just use it in polite conversation, in worship, or in praying to God. They actually used it to express anger, and anguish, and disappointment, and grief. And they poured all of that out to God. And sometimes Sometimes you read what they wrote, and it even sounds like they're accusing God of being like an absentee landlord in the world, of of falling asleep on the job. There's an Old Testament scholar, a woman named Ellen Davis, who wrote this about the uniqueness of Old Testament prayer. She said, in no other culture did people pray to the high God in a language that was so strong, so forthright, and even sometimes rude. Wake up, God. God, are you asleep at the wheel? Have you forgotten us? We haven't forgotten you. Truth is, often they had. But have you ever found yourself in a circumstance in life where you've asked that question, you've you've had that feeling? Have you forgotten us, God? Well, if you've ever asked that question... You're in the right place this morning. That question, where is God when trouble emerges in our lives? That's the question for the day. And and I want to say at the outset that that question is not a counter to faith. That in fact, that question is a deep part of our faith. And for the rest of our time together, what I'd like to do is look at what Jesus said about trouble. There are a number of places in the Gospels where Jesus speaks about trouble, but there's one place in particular, one moment that has been really helpful to me and to and to Christians through the centuries in addressing the difficult situations of life. You find that moment just before Jesus is about to be arrested, just before he's about to be taken off and that spiral of circumstances that will lead to that rushed trial and eventually to his crucifixion. 
All of that is just about to be set in motion. And he's spending these final moments with his disciples, and he's preparing them for what's about to happen. And he's setting the stage for what life will look like when he's gone. And at the very end of that conversation, when everything hangs in the balance, everything is on the line, this is what he said to them. These words are from John 16, verse 33. Jesus said, I've told you these things so that you may have peace. And listen to these words. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. For I have overcome the world. What I'd like to do with you today as we, as we unpack those, those words is to look at the two phrases separately. The first phrase, in this world you will have trouble. And then afterwards we want to look at that command, that, that affirmation, that promise. Take heart. First the command and then the promise I have overcome the world. What is it that Jesus is trying to teach us in those words? So let's start with the first phrase. In this world, you will have trouble. The first thing you notice in those words is just just how matter-of-fact Jesus is, how honest he is. I mean, he's saying basically, don't be surprised when trouble comes. Don't expect that life will go by and everything will happen according to plan. It's not the way life is. One of the things I love most about Jesus and about the, the, the Gospels is, is just how honest and how realistic they are. Jesus never suggesting that we put rose-colored glasses over our eyes when we look at the world. He doesn't try and spin the truth. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't neglect it. He just speaks it. In this world, you will have trouble. Years ago, there was a psychiatrist by the name of M. Scott Peck wrote a famous book called The Road Less Traveled. He opened the book with these three simple words. He said, life is difficult. And then he spent the next 300 pages unpacking that simple truth. In this world, you will have trouble. Life is difficult. Don't get too close or too attached to that master plan because there are going to be detours. And all of it raises the question. It's the question we're going to look at now. What is it that Jesus means when he says trouble? In this world, you will have trouble. I want to suggest to you that there are four basic categories that we see both in Scripture and as we reflect on our own lives that flesh out what's meant by the word trouble. They refer to the different kinds of adversity that we face, the different kinds of pain that we feel. Here's the first. There is a pain that comes from making bad choices. There's a pain that comes in bad choices. This is the trouble that we bring on ourselves. Sometimes we try and blame God or we blame other people. But the truth is we brought it on ourselves by our own bad choices. Sometimes we're the source of the trouble that we're in. A person goes through a series of constant failed relationships and they're always complaining, why can't I find a good person out there, the right person? Why is everybody else so messed up? And then maybe... Maybe a courageous friend 
finally works up the courage to say to them, do you know, it occurs to me that the one constant in every one of those failed relationships is you. Maybe the problem isn't just them. Maybe part of the problem is you. I mean, nobody likes hearing that, but, but that can change your life. It can awaken you to the reality that part of our struggle, part of our trouble, is actually the result of our own choices. And sometimes we need to hear it. So right now, we're going to do an exercise in wise friendship. And what I'd invite you to do, if you've got somebody else in the room with you, is turn and look at them right now. Look at them right in the face, eyeball to eyeball, and say this, you're part of the problem. <laughs> or, If you need to, if you're alone in the room, maybe you want to write that in a note or send it as a text. Say, you're part of the problem. Doesn't it feel good to say it? The spouses, some of you have been waiting forever to say that to your spouse. You're part of the problem. That may be true. But that's not the only source of our pain, is it? Here's a second area of trouble. There is pain that comes from good choices. Maybe that sounds counterintuitive, but you know that's true. Sometimes pain or trouble happens because we do the right thing, and doing the right thing has consequences. A person who decides that they're not going to work a lot of overtime because they want to spend more time with their family, that's the right thing. But as a result, they're passed over for promotion, and there are ensuing financial problems for the family. A person who is vigilant about keeping certain boundaries in their relationship. Maybe they lose a relationship because of it. A person who gives honest feedback in a relationship. Maybe you're part of the problem, just like we practiced. But the person they said it to didn't respond well at all. And something in the relationship broke. For many people... Making the right choice also can lead to trouble. And when that kind of trouble comes, it's also accompanied by resentment, by bitterness. God, I did the right thing. Why am I getting trouble as a result? So there's pain from bad choices. There's pain from good choices. And then here's the third one. And this is the one that that strikes really close to home for a lot of people. There's pain from loss. And here's the thing about loss. Loss comes regardless of our choices. It comes when we make good choices. It comes when we make bad choices. It comes when we make no choices. There are just so many forms of loss that we live with. Sickness. Sickness is a loss of health. Unemployment. That's a loss of work. Divorce or breakup, the loss of a relationship. Betrayal is the loss of a friendship. Injury, the loss of ability. Death, death itself, the loss of the gift of life, at least life as we know it. And here's the thing. We all know that loss is coming. It's unavoidable. And yet we're all still so unprepared when it comes. And so it impacts us. It hits, it hits hard, and it hurts You know, there's one moment in the life of Jesus 
where we see him break down, weeping, crying over the death of his friend Lazarus. It's, it's the only record we have of Jesus breaking down like that, but, but surely a sign of the weight of loss. Trouble comes, and sometimes it comes in the form of loss. And can I just say, on behalf of your church family, that we know that there are some of you, too many of you, who've experienced really significant loss over the past year. And there's been pain and there's been powerlessness and it leads to this, sometimes this sense of resignation in life or, or even little bouts of depression. You're not alone. I'm going to come back to that at the end. But you're not alone. If we could, we would just throw a big virtual embrace around all of you to remind you that you are not alone. So pain from bad choices, pain from good choices, pain from loss. Here's the last category. There is pain in the world from, I guess, what you'd have to describe as senseless suffering. So much of what we see in the news from day to day It feels like exactly that, senseless suffering, a global pandemic, child poverty, human trafficking, tragic death, natural disasters, a mother's miscarriage, whatever it is, it just feels like like senseless suffering, the death of a child. It's beyond explanation. And the road here, the road here often leads to despair. And it can feel like the weight of the world is just breaking you. In fact, of each of the kinds of trouble, of each of the four, I think it may be this last one that Jesus is pointing to the most. And here's why. The little word that Jesus uses, the Greek word he uses in John 16, verse 33, is the word flipsis. Try saying that. Flipsis. It's kind of fun to say, but it sure is bitter to live. He uses that word flipsis, and it means more than just difficulty. It's not just affliction. It actually, the word means weightiness or burden. In this world, you will have weighty burdens. You will have heavy affliction. The weight of the world pressing down on you. In this world, you will have flipsis, trouble. In this world, you experience the weight of all of that crushing down on you. Maybe for some of you, that's your story today. Maybe for some, that's the story of someone you love. And the natural question, whether it's you or the person you care about, is why? I mean, I'm sure you've asked that question, right? Why? I don't pretend to offer a full answer, but I, I want to give you part of the answer, and I actually think it's a big part of the answer. Much of the trouble that we face in the world today is the consequence of a cycle of sin and brokenness that has been spiraling out of control for centuries, for millennia. It's just It's part now of the fabric of the world, the web of injustice and greed and violence and 
and even the natural order. I mean, theologians are right. Creation itself has fallen, and we see that. I do something that hurts someone else, and it, that thing gets embedded in their soul, and they in turn pass that hurt on, and the cycle of sin and its painful consequences, it gets traced back all the way to the very earliest stories in Scripture. The same with, with the earth itself, which you have this sense has, has become tilted on its axis from the beauty of a garden where God walks with his people to this place now prone to cyclone and hurricane and mudslide of epidemic disease, bubonic plagues, smallpox, and the plague of our generation, COVID. And I realize that that's not a full answer. Not everything seems to have a clear-cut answer. Why? But here's where we have to be really clear. We know there is pain in the world. We know there is trouble. But just because there is pain doesn't mean that God causes it or even that God wants it. I realize in saying that I'm out on a limb a little bit, and there will be those who disagree with me, but hear me out, because I think this is something really important for you to know about pain in our world Pain is a consequence of our sin, not a punishment for it. Pain is a consequence, not a punishment. Jesus is really quite clear about this, and this is important. Again, this is, this is often, I think, mistaught in our churches. Jesus absolutely rejects the notion that tragedy is always a result of God's judgment. Look at Luke 13. Open your Bible up to Luke 13. Jesus hears about two deadly disasters that have happened. Somebody opened up the newspaper and shows it to him. And this is what he says, Luke 13, verse 2. He says, do you think that these Galileans, that they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? In other words, is it because of their sin that they suffered? Is this pain that God is inflicting on them? He says, I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. And then he goes on to say, speaking about another news story, and of those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? Again, I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Do tragedies happen? Jesus is saying, Because some people are more sinful than others, Jesus says, no, 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 no. You can't be much clearer than that. But Jesus goes on to say to the rest of us that unless we address the situation in our own lives, unless we repent, the same cycle that plays itself out again and again in the world will play itself out in our own lives. Not because God is waiting around the corner to send some natural disaster into your life to punish you, but because Jesus understands, pardon me, Jesus understands that we are sinners too. And there is no such thing in our world as a purely innocent person. We too We make decisions that cause others pain. We too, we benefit from systems that are unjust and oppressive. 
We too, we're not just the victims of suffering. Sometimes we are the perpetrators of it in some significant way. In fact, I love the way that Psalm 130 speaks into this situation because it speaks not just about sin, which has to be taken seriously, but also about the grace of God in the face of sin. This is Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, Lord, kept a, rec- kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? Who's innocent? Who doesn't have blood on their hands? If you kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? One of my favorite things about that, that verse is the very first word, the word if. If you kept a record of sins. Which means that that God didn't do that. In fact, God did something else. And that leads to what we want to talk about next. Remember we said that, that Romans 16 came in two parts. In this world, you will have trouble. That's the reality check. And then comes the command and the promise. Take heart, Jesus says, for I have overcome the world. Now, notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, I'm going to immediately fix all the circumstances. I'm going to dispense with all the trouble and your life will be perfect from now on. No, but he does say something more important. He says, I have overcome the world. Now, what does that mean? To overcome, to to conquer, to defeat, to, to have victory. Jesus is claiming a bigger victory than than just a bunch of self-help tips or some quick fixes. He's not just stronger than the little troubles that plague us. Jesus says, I have overcome the world itself. He did it by taking that cycle of sin, all of it, onto himself, by taking it all to the cross, by taking it all to the grave. And then he was raised up to new life on the other side. And he said, on the other side is where you will find me waiting and welcoming the world back into healing. You see, the cross, the cross is not just about dealing with sin in our own lives. It's certainly about that, but it's not just that. The cross changes the entire fabric of human history. At that moment in time, On the cross, the universe changed unalterably and forever. The world that we live in changed. And so now we live in what theologians will often call the already, but the not yet. Or the now and the not yet. Jesus has already defeated sin and death but we're not yet fully free of its pain and of its frustration. Jesus knows how the story ends, but we're still living through it with all of its uncertainty and doubt. It's both now and it's not yet. It's been consummated, but it hasn't been fulfilled. It's been inaugurated, but it hasn't been finished. I know that's it's kind of a paradox. So let me, let me take a stab at illustrating it. When a man asks a woman, to marry him. And I know it happens the other way around, but this is my story, so here's how it happened. When a man asks a woman to marry him, his job is to come up with a heartwarming, tear-jerking, costifying plan that basically makes it impossible for her to say no. 
I was not one of those men. When Karina and I were engaged, I, I did have this elaborate plan, which very quickly unraveled and descended into one catastrophic event after another. In this world, you will have trouble. That's the story of our engagement. When I went to the bank to withdraw the money to go pick up her ring, I got caught up in the middle of a robbery. Not mine. I wasn't holding them hostage for the money for the ring, but but caught up in the middle of a bank robbery while the robber was in the bank. Uh, I didn't leave the bank with any money, and so I didn't have any ring. I just left with, uh, well, a lot of tremors. When eventually I got the ring, I think I was still so anxious about the whole affair that all the plans went out the window, and I remember just dropping it in her lap and saying, here, this is for you. You'll never know what I went through to get this. Now, thankfully, Karina still said yes. I just I don't think I was allowed to plan date night for quite a while after that. On that night, we were living through the chaos of the already but the not yet. Even though I probably did everything in my power to screw it up, even though I was feeling fear and anxiety and frustration about everything that had led up to that moment, I still had the ring. And God knew how things were going to end. And it wasn't with pain. And it wasn't with brokenness. It would be with joy and celebration and a shared future. We are living in the already and the not yet. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. For most of us, we see the trouble. And we may be tempted to think that it will always be this way. And it's hard to to hold on to that overcoming promise. I have overcome the world which really means that Jesus already has the ring. And he knows how the story ends. And it's not with tears and it's not with pain. It's, well, this is how the Bible describes it. Beautifully in Revelation 21, here's the end. It says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For that old order of things has all passed away. And actually, if you have that verse open in your Bible, in Revelation 21, you'll see just before that, it envisions the church as what? What's the image? As a bride, beautifully adorned in preparation for her groom. Jesus already has the ring. And whatever troubles you face today, those are not the last word. I want to close our time today just with three quick words of encouragement. Whether you find yourself in the midst of a situation that is really dire, or whether this is a day of, of lightness and things are doing great, just three words. And these have been a source of encouragement for me, so I want to pass them on just as humbly as I can. And I know, I know that in a lot of situations where, where there's tremendous adversity, deep trouble, that no words are going to feel like they matter a lot. And that's the case. It's, it's okay. But just in the, in the hope that maybe somebody needs to hear them, here they are. 
And if you'd like, you can write them down or they're in your notes. Here's the first. Don't give up. That sounds silly, doesn't it? But don't give up. For some of you, the pain feels so great. The hope seems so faint, so far away that every morning you feel like throwing in the towel and just giving up, which is why Jesus uses that phrase. It's a command. He says, take heart. Take heart. The literal, the literal translation there is have courage. Be bold. Take a risk. Don't give up. Instead of assuming that that compulsive habit, that addiction will always defeat you, don't give up. Ask for help. Get in a small group. Join a 12-step program. Just don't give up. Instead of quitting on that difficult job, ask God to help you be your best self starting Monday, starting tomorrow. Just don't give up. Instead of checking out on a loved one or a difficult relationship, do the hard work, the work of praying or confronting or apologizing or loving or whatever is necessary, but don't give up. Instead of giving up on faith itself and letting it go, try to keep talking, keep praying, keep believing that Jesus has a way. Don't give up. Sometimes we never even get to a place where we fully understand everything that happens in our lives. Sometimes we don't get the answers and we never really get the answer to the big question, why? But don't give up. As you persevere, something else to hold on to in the midst of this is the promise of Jesus and the second word that I want to give to you. Not just don't give up. This awareness, which is at the heart of Romans 8, that verse you committed to memory, that Jesus can bring something good out of any evil. That's an audacious claim, isn't it? That Jesus can bring good from any evil. In the Gospel of John, the disciples come across a man who had been born blind. That's in John chapter 9. They challenged Jesus about the situation. They said, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? Why was he born blind? In other words, why did this happen? Who's at fault? Listen to how Jesus responds. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Notice what Jesus does and what he doesn't do. He doesn't give an answer to the why question. Instead, he answers a different question. For what? In spite of the severity of the circumstances, for what can God use this? He can use even that man's blindness, terrible suffering, for good. He can use trouble to grow character. He can use it to bring people closer together in solidarity and deeper love. God can even use our pain, and and some of you know this, he can use our pain to bless others. People who have been through struggle are uniquely able to comfort those who are walking the same path. It doesn't make suffering right. 
doesn't mean that we should be any less vigilant about fighting injustice or violence or disease, but suffering is never for nothing. Whatever your trouble is, it's never for nothing. And here's the last word. You're not alone. Hard to hear, isn't it? When we have been locked in our homes for so long, isolated, you're not alone. The heart's cry of the scripture and of the gospels is that God is with you, and not just that, that God suffers when his people suffer. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus said. His way of saying, I get it, I understand because I lived it. You're not alone. Whatever it is, tension in your marriage, loneliness in your heart, financial stress in your family, the struggle that you see playing out in the person that you love, grief over loss, God knows and you are not alone. See, I'm not at all convinced that Jesus came into the world to explain suffering. Because explaining it doesn't take it away. He came into the world to share it. And eventually, through the victory of the cross, to heal it. Let me leave you with this verse as we close. This is from Psalm 10. You maybe want to dog ear this page in your Bible. Psalm 10, verse 14. Listen to what the psalmist says. But you, God, you see the trouble of the afflicted. You see it, you know it, and you consider their grief, and you take it in hand. Hands that can hold cancer, hands that can hold divorce, hands that can hold sickness, hands that can even hold death. Hands that still bear the scars of the nails that held Jesus to the cross. Hands that he showed to his disciples after he was risen from the grave as if to say, now in a new way, not as a sign of defeat, but as a declaration of victory. Now in this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will face heartache. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. And Jesus' hands have the scars to prove it.